Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The violence from the U.S. Capitol breach on Wednesday shocked the nation, but scenes of angry rioters and property destruction were all too familiar here in Idaho. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Professor Jeffrey Lyons of Boise State University discusses the breach at the U.S. Capitol and how events during Idaho's special legislative session in August may have helped normalize the actions of the rioters. Colonel Kedrick Wills of the Idaho State Police discusses security measures at the State House for the 2021 legislative session. And James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio brings us up to date on an ADA lawsuit from two Democratic House members over COVID-19 mitigation efforts at the State House. But first, when we last saw you in December, some healthcare leaders were concerned that Idaho would reach crisis standards of care around the holidays because of shrinking ICU space and a shortage of healthcare workers. But one week into January, hospitalizations and cases have declined, though deaths have gone up and the state's positivity rate increased to 16.2%. As of Friday morning, nearly 27,000 Idahoans had received the first dose of the vaccine. We'll continue to cover the vaccine rollout and the spread of COVID-19 through the legislative session. Early this week, as Congress prepared to certify the results of the 2020 presidential election, Idaho Representative Russ Fulcher announced that he would join some of his Republican colleagues in opposing the certification of the results from some states. Based on the following grounds, I object to the electoral report. Article 1, Section 2, Clause 1 of the United States Constitution specifically grants state legislatures the authority to prescribe election processes. However, this last November, there were undeniable occurrences whereby either state officials or a court bypassed their applicable state legislatures and redefined many of their respective election parameters. These actions warrant that Congress exercise its constitutional responsibility to question election results for any state in violation of their own election laws. On Wednesday morning, it wasn't yet clear how the rest of Idaho's delegation would vote, but by midday, the certification was no longer the main story as a mob of Trump supporters broke through the barricades and invaded the U.S. Capitol where members of the House and Senate were debating. At least one Idahoan was in the middle of it all. I just, I just got in the white. I just got in the Capitol building. I was the first one. I hopped down into the chamber, and I was the first one to sit. And Nancy Pelosi, that her house, her she's, she's a traitor. She's treasonous. But like, I'm just like every single one of those people that was marching. Like, a peaceful protest came here to represent America. Represent. We're tired of being lied to. We're tired of people stealing, stealing, you know, from us, stealing our freedom, stealing our liberties. And, you know, I didn't hurt anybody in there. Like, yeah, I did sit in Nancy Pelosi's seat. Like, she, she shouldn't be there. Josiah Colt of Meridian confirmed to CBS2 in Boise that he was one of those who made it to the Senate chamber and that he occupied the seat usually reserved for the president 
the Senate. Colt told CBS2 that he was consulting with an attorney. Meanwhile, other rioters who trespassed in the Capitol have already been arrested. At the end of the day, Representative Fulcher was the only member of Idaho congressional delegation who voted against certification. Several of Idaho's Democratic and Republican leaders, meanwhile, including the governor, condemned the violence at the Capitol, which resulted in five deaths and shocked the nation. But some of the scenes of broken glass and angry protesters shoving police were all too familiar to Idahoans who paid attention to the special legislative session in August. Professor Jeffrey Lyons of Boise State University's School of Public Service joined me on Friday to talk about the two events the role of misinformation in the anger we've seen and whether we're entering a new era of civic discourse. Thanks so much for joining us today. First of all, I wanted to get your reaction. Were you surprised with what happened on Wednesday? Um, you know, I guess I was surprised that this specific thing happened. And by that, I mean a, a mob storming the Capitol during a legal and constitutional proceeding of Congress but maybe not surprised that we've seen something like this happen, right? So some kind of um, mob violence, uh, things like this. So like in the general sense, no, but about this specific thing, yeah. It, you and I have spoken about fake news and misinformation in our modern society before. So let's talk about that intersection between that misinformation and the anger that we saw. A lot of the people we saw storm the Capitol uh, were legitimately mad. They honestly believed that the election had been stolen despite any actual evidence. So how do we bridge that gap in reality? Where do we go from here? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you're right. The anger people are feeling is real anger. Uh, these are real emotions that we, we live in a very uh, polarized, very divisive time. People in general are very emotionally charged about politics. I think it's challenging. You know, when we talk about the, the side, the citizen side of the equation, I think it's really a hard, um, a hard story about going forward. I don't, I don't know that we're ever going to be able to totally uh, separate people's anger from the misinformation. You know, uh, we live in a world that's very polarized where people's political beliefs have essentially become a part of how they identify as a person. And when that happens, um, our brains are not really wired to pursue the truth. They're wired to find things that tell us that we're right, things that are comforting to us. And so we don't go around looking for the truth. We go around looking for things that tell us that we're right. And when we live in a, a information environment like what we have today where you can go online and find somebody to tell you anything. Um, that's a really challenging thing, but I think what we can hope for going forward is that we have elected officials, uh, party leaders who um, value and prioritize the truth, who uh, put those things at the forefront. Um, I think, I think that the citizen side is tough, but if we can have party officials who uh, these people do look up to, who prioritized the truth, that really is our is our way forward, is on the leadership front. But if people, if you have that confirmation bias, if you have that baseline where that's so hard to overcome, what role do say members of the media and public officials have when so much of that is on the individual to choose to overcome that confirmation bias that they that they have ingrained in them? Yeah, I mean, I don't think you can ever overcome it. I mean, it, it is a part of human psychology. And so 
um, it is a really, it's a big ask to say to everybody, you need to overcome this bias. I think what we can do is we can try to minimize it. And we can, like, you know, conspiracy theories and things like this have been around forever. Uh, that's not something new. What is new is the availability of information. And so if party leaders are prioritizing the truth and they are prioritizing things that we know to be accurate, it's going to go a long ways to um, marginalizing conspiracy theories, to pushing them to the far fringes. They're always going to be there. But if we can push them to the far fringes, their impact is going to be a lot lower. And hopefully the kinds of events that we've seen this week are going to be uh, fewer and further between. They're probably never going to fully go away, but they can at least be marginalized and pushed uh, to the outside. I guess in Idaho and nationwide, we've seen a lot of Republican leaders really try to walk the line between saying, I fully support the Trump administration's right to uh, pursue all of their legal avenues in challenging the vote, while also saying, uh, some not until this week that uh, President-elect Biden will be sworn in on January 20th. Is it too little too late? Is what we're hearing since Wednesday enough to overcome some of that misinformation and rage that we've been seeing since November? Yeah, it's really, you know, and I will say they, they're in a bit of a tough position here um, because President Trump is the de facto leader of the Republican Party. Um, but with that said, there certainly, I think, could have been more efforts a little bit earlier on, uh, especially when these court challenges started um, being turned away, right, or rulings against the president. I, you know, I think their argument that we should let the legal process play out is a reasonable one. Uh, but once the legal process has played out at that point, it is time to honor our institutions and honor our norms and all of these kinds of things. And, and the reality is there were lawsuits filed in a number of different states on a number of different claims, and they have been um, universally overturned, and many of them by conservative judges, by judges even appointed by the Trump administration. And so, you know, I think that the, um, the, the lack of, at that point, saying this thing is over, we need to move on, is what perhaps we could do a better job of in the future. You know, back to the storming of the U.S. Capitol on Wednesday. We saw this happen in August in Idaho during that special session. And we also saw it in other state houses, like in, um, in Kansas and Oregon in the last several weeks. But Idaho was the only place that I know of where the Speaker of the House went and tried to negotiate with the, with the protesters. Um, what role did those events play in perhaps normalizing what happened on Wednesday? Yeah, you know, the, the more these things happen, the more they become a part of um, how we perceive the political process to play out. And, um, and so if we're seeing this sort of um, spread at the state level, maybe it shouldn't surprise us to see it come to Washington, D.C. There's no doubt that once something becomes more and more common, it becomes more prevalent, it changes people's perceptions about the political process, about what is a legitimate avenue and what is an illegitimate avenue um, to sort of express your views and express your grievances. And, and, and in our society, you know, we, we have these sort of clear norms about how people are to engage in this process, you know, contacting your representatives, you know, sending letters, sending emails, phone calls, protesting, donating money. Um, these are all legitimate means, but this does enter into a different kind of a conversation when we're talking about storming legislatures, um, 
during you know sessions of the legislature disrupting uh, elected officials doing their jobs. Along those lines, I keep seeing comments like we're better than this or this isn't us. But at what point is this the new norm or if not the norm, one of the norms when it comes to civil discourse? It's a really good question that I've been thinking a lot about and, and I frankly struggle with it a little bit. On the one hand, um, there's no doubt that this behavior has proliferated and it has become a sizable topic of conversation. What we saw on Wednesday, um, there's just no doubt this is a, a monumental and historic um, problem that, we, that we're faced with. On the other hand, I, you know, if, I'm, if I'm being an optimist, um, I tell myself that 99.9% .9 of the electorate does not do these kinds of things. And in fact, what we have seen recently is you know, we just had an election with record voter turnout and people are protesting and people are contacting, you know, people are engaged in a way that we actually haven't seen in the past. So, you know, for me, it's kind of a, a, a two-sided coin where there's no doubt that this is, this, this, these events, even if it is a small share, are very meaningful and very consequential and they need to be uh, addressed for us to have a healthy functioning democracy. At the same time, the overwhelming majority of people are more engaged than ever and they're doing it through all of our normal healthy channels. All right, Professor Lyons, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, I appreciate it. Even before Wednesday's events, lawmakers and the public alike had concerns about security during the upcoming 2021 legislative session. In December, House and Senate leaders spoke to Idaho State Police about increasing the number of troopers at the State House during the session, culminating in the Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee appropriating $350,000 for ISP to provide additional security. On Friday, Colonel Kedrick Wills of Idaho State Police Join me to talk about security at the Capitol, as well as the balance between safety, government transparency, and the public's First Amendment rights. Thank you so much for joining us today, Colonel Wills. I, I wanted to start with the special session and lessons learned. Going into that 2021 legislative session that's starting next week, what lessons are you taking from what happened in August, and how is the 2021 session going to look different? So one of the things that we've that we did learn, certainly this this process is ongoing for us of how we can what what can we do at the state house to make sure that everybody's constitutional rights are um, made secure and safeguarded and also ensure the continuity of government and make sure that that goes while people are still free to be able to be part of the process. So some of those as as we learn from lessons learned from times past and ongoing things, and you asked a, a kind of a multi-question there, so I'll kind of answer it in parts. The uh, one of the things we learned was the need for us to be to be able to have uh, more of an open dialogue with the public, so that people understand where we where we're coming from and what our goals are. And so that's I appreciate you uh, having us on and speaking with me about this, so we can get that message out. You know, in our democracy, it is so important that the citizen is part of the process. That's how it's it, the entire system is set up. And so we have to make sure that that Idahoans feel that they are able to be part of the process and feel safe and secure in our capital. So the, the, this session will look a little bit different than in the past. One of the ways it'll look different, for example, is social distancing in committee rooms so that people feel safe with the COVID-19 issue going on. 
So that is one way it'll look different. Another way that it'll look different is you will see an increased presence of uniformed state troopers. Again, we're trying to strike that balance of making sure people are able to participate in the process. It's our government as a people to participate in that process, but also feel safe and secure while doing so. One of the things that won't be different is people will have access to move up the Capitol as they see fit, just like they have in, in times past. This is the Idaho way, and it's important to us that we maintain that. You know, in December, the Coronavirus Financial Advisory Committee approved funding for eight additional ISP officers to be at the State House during the session. In addition to those extra officers, is anything changing as far as ISP training, uh, especially in light of what happened on Wednesday in the U.S. Capitol? So we're looking at, we, we have um, changed some of the things that we're doing with the troopers that come in. We're looking at being able to be more fluid and have numbers accessible that's more fluid for those, for those times, because as you know, these things sometimes happen suddenly. We're working with our partners, the Department of Administration, of course, with the Capitol building, as well as Boise Police, to make sure we're using limited resources in the best way that we possibly can, so that we are, uh, so that we are, um, able to uh, to meet those needs and above everything else we want to always treat everybody with respect that is one of our main tenants with the Idaho State Police is that people feel that they're respected and that we put them in a position so that their voice can be heard so that they feel like their voice is heard that's so important to us that people feel that their constitutional rights are upheld and they feel safe being part of the process so let's talk a little bit about that balance between safety and the public's right to assemble and the right to seek redress from their government, their right to free speech. Are there going to be differences when it comes to access aside from those COVID-19 mitigation efforts like social distancing? Is there going to be limited access because of what we saw in August? The, the um, inside our capital, you're asking? Yes. Yeah, people will be able to freely move about the Capitol as they have in times past. The difference will be, of course, social distancing, maybe protocols, but people will be able to move freely as they have in the past. If we see a protest like what we saw in August, uh, who makes the call on when it goes too far? Does that come down to ISP? Is it legislative leadership or is it the individual troopers who are on the scene? So there are there are a, a few different aspects of that, if I could kind of break it down a little bit. First of all, I would just like to share that the vast majority of Idahoans are respectful. They're respectful of each other and they're respectful of our beautiful building that we call our capital. And that is one of the things that's great about living in Idaho and that I'm thankful that we are here that we have. And so we're not, de we're not talking about the vast majority of Idahoans, but there are some who have decided that they're not going to follow the laws or whatever. And we are a nation of laws, and that is part of what we hold dear in our nation. And those who choose not to, of course, will have to answer for their, their uh, take responsibility for their actions through the criminal justice system. But what we want to do is we want, as the Idaho State Police, we want to be a resource for those who want to come and demonstrate. And if they will reach out to the state police, we want to help them so that they are put in a position so that their demonstration, we can get, we can help them understand what the limitations are and what they can and can't do as far as this, the laws of the state and the rules. But it's it's combination with um, the leadership of the House and the Senate that set those rules, as well as the Department of Administration. We work really closely with the Department of Administration. 
And then ultimately the Idaho State Police is one responsible for helping enforce that rule, those rules. And so that's kind of how that rolls out. Nationwide, there have been so many conversations about how different groups of protesters have been treated differently. Um, we saw a, a very different reaction from officers nationwide with Black Lives Matter protesters than we saw with what happened on Wednesday. That was one of the things that also came up last year during the special session. In 2014, dozens of Add the Words protesters were arrested, and there were only a handful of arrests after what happened in August, even with that property damage. Has the Idaho State Police leadership discussed those different responses and how and and whether that's going to be the same in the future? So what we have with with the Idaho State Police as it relates to, and you're sharing two different demonstrations, and they were vastly different and so they were treated differently because they were vastly different demonstrations and those rules are subject to change too those decisions that we make at the time by those individual troopers on the ground they're trying to make the best decision they can at that moment and um, sometimes that means that we're, we physically arrest somebody right then and there and sometimes it means that we are going to use investigation techniques later on to determine if somebody violated the law or not and those troopers on the ground right there are trying to make those decisions. But what's so important to us is that every person feels that their constitutional rights are, are upheld. And so to that end, we want to have a discussion with everybody that um, that is involved in these demonstrations. In fact, this summer we did, I personally met with several um, of the leaders of demonstrations, as did, as did many of our troopers, because we want to know how can, how can we improve? What can we do to make you feel more safe and secure and help you to make, make sure that you are able to demonstrate, but do it in a safe manner for everybody involved. But sometimes I would also share with you that sometimes arrests are made as part of planning for the people involved in the protest. That's their end goal. They want to be arrested. And so they do those things. And in some cases, they've even worked and told us, this is our plan ahead of time. And so we help them to understand those things as well. And so I think it, to compare those two maybe isn't a fair comparison because they were so different, but the troopers on the ground try to make make those the best decision they can for the safety of the people there. Earlier in our conversation, you mentioned that uh, you, you try to make the best decisions you can with limited resources. As we look ahead to the 2021 session, is it enough to have eight additional people there? So the eight number is is the increase that we have there at the at the Capitol throughout the session. That doesn't mean that that's the fixed number that we'll have the entire session. We have plans that are able to fluctuate based on the ongoing circumstances and add resources or less resources as things move because things are so fluid. So while yes, the funding was for eight, that doesn't mean that there will be eight troopers only there. That's not the case. All right, Colonel Wills, thank you so much for your time. Melissa, I'm so thankful for you that you took the time to visit with us. We wanna be good partners with and good stewards of the public and we want to get this message out. So thanks so much for helping us do so. And while we're talking about safety, there are still concerns about COVID-19. While House and Senate majority leaders are implementing social distancing in meeting rooms at the State House, some lawmakers are, are still concerned about the lack of mask requirements and the inability to vote remotely. On Friday, James Dawson of Boise State Public Radio joined me to discuss a lawsuit filed by two Democratic House members. 
Thanks so much for joining us today. Can you give us a rundown of the complaint? Sure. So you had representatives uh, Sue Chu and Muffy Davis, both Democrats uh, in the Idaho House, file a lawsuit against Scott Bedke, uh, House Speaker Scott Bedke, that is, uh, since he is the one who oversees the administration of everything on that side of the building. And they say that their health conditions, uh, Representative Chu has diabetes and hypertension, while uh, Representative Davis has paraplegia, she has a spinal cord injury and uses a wheelchair. And those conditions, um, in addition to Representative Davis's daughter also being asthmatic, um, all of those conditions, medical experts say, put you at a much higher risk for serious complications if you are to contract COVID-19. And so they felt like, you know, they did not feel safe uh, on the House floor or while they were um, using the public hallways to get to and from committee rooms. Um, there aren't really many ways to avoid uh, people. There's no mask mandate in the state capitol, uh, at least in those parts controlled by the legislature. Uh, and so they're asking for the ability to participate virtually, which is not currently available to any lawmaker um, in the House or Senate. Uh, it's written in the rules that you have to physically be at your desk to cast a vote. Um, and they're also asking for enclosed office space, uh, which they don't have right now. They're part of the cubicle farm that uh, a lot of uh, lawmakers and this year, uh, Democrats in the minor minority were uh, forced, to, forced to use this year. Now, this is the first legal action that we know of, but it's not an isolated complaint. We've heard these concerns up over the last few months. It's true. I mean, if you look back to March when the legislature was still in session, despite the uh, growing surge across the country of, of the coronavirus, um, you know, you had uh, several representatives and senators, for instance, uh, Representative Steve Birch, who has a family member who's immune compromised. He uh, left a couple days, I believe, before um, the legislature adjourned sine die. Uh, Senator Dave Nelson, um, Representative Alana Rubel, you know, the House Minority Leader, uh, who also has a pre-existing condition. Um, you know, these concerns, like you said, have been brought up multiple times. Uh, and Republicans, they have tried to mitigate some of these. Uh, lawmakers who wanted plexiglass installed uh, on the front or side of their seats uh, had that installed. Um, they have, uh, at least in the upcoming legislative session, there are going to be um, chairs in the committee rooms and the galleries uh, taped off to promote physical distancing. But uh, when I talked to Speaker Bedke, you know, last month, uh, he didn't seem to think that there was any kind of will to get that two-thirds majority vote needed to change the rules to allow for any kind of uh, remote participation. Right. And he said the same thing to us, saying that he wanted lawmakers there and to be as efficient as possible. Any indication whether this complaint that was filed this week um, will change those negotiations? Is it is are, are we going to see any changes to those plans that Speaker Bedke told us about last month? Not that I can see. I mean, if you look at the statement that he sent out to the media uh, on Thursday, he said that he was um, disappointed that negotiations had taken this turn um, in the form of a federal lawsuit uh, and that the Republican leadership was, uh, you know, trying to make it work and find an equitable solution for everyone. But uh, it gave no indication that he was going to, you know, kind of uh, maybe take a step back and acquiesce to these demands. All right, James Dawson, thank you so much for your time.
Thanks, Melissa. Thanks for watching. On Monday, Governor Brad Little will give his annual State of the State address. Watch it live on Idaho Public Television at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, noon Pacific, and stay tuned after the address to hear live reactions and analysis. And if you can't watch the speech and our reporting at that time, you can catch it later online at IdahoPTV.org. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.